Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam. I'm joined by co-host Jerry Robinson. Do you remember the last time you went down to the beach and just wanted to have a little fun and you tried not to think about the unspeakable horrors lurking out in the water? Well, today we're going to talk about that. So put your mind at rest. We're giving you another episode of Tomes of Magic. We're going to talk about Blood Dim Tides. Before we do, I thought I might open this up for announcements. And you know, before even that, I've just been thinking about uh, hermetic training. And I don't think I understand antinomian praxis. Uh, You know, the idea that you do something bad and out of character to expand your understanding. Do hermetic mentors ever have problems with that? I can imagine a student saying to his mentor, well, I respect life and I respect authority. So I'm going to kill my mentor. The mentor says, oh, you know, you know, this antinomian practice stuff, it's not really a big deal. In fact, I'm just going to take it right off your training program, and I'm making sure they don't give you a steak knife at dinner. Or what about the student who says, I respect knowledge, so I'm going to burn a book. And the mentor says, you weenie, you don't sound like hermetic material. I'm not going to be satisfied until you burn down the chantry. Is antinomian practice the time to say go big or go home? Maybe I just don't understand this. Uh, hopefully Terry can explain it to me after the recording. But uh, Terry, are there any announcements? The only announcements I have are that I have three alternate titles for this book. One is World of Darkness, No Seriously, Don't Let the Technocracy and Pentex Work Together. Or alternatively, 130 pages and not a single sea shanty. Or alternatively, a blood-dimmed send-off to Wraith and Changeling. I think all three of those work surprisingly well. Okay, well, Blood Dimmed Tides is a World of Darkness title, and so it purports to give material for all of the World of Darkness games. It came out in 1999. There were four different authors contributing to this, and I did not recognize any names of regular mage contributors in there. Clock's in at 126 pages. Terry, well, let's uh, hear what's in it. I will be glad to. There is no long dedication in the front of it. It is just the facts. The cover itself is a shark and a crab and some cuttlefish and some octopuses and some menacing sea creatures. We didn't get any of the cuties. We didn't get a whale or a pinniped or even like a marlin or something like this. So you know that we're putting our sea trench coats on before wading into the ocean to get our black boots filled with sand and grit. The opening fiction is a Coast Guard ship that tries to rescue a cargo vessel, but it turns out that boat is being reclaimed by the Captain Zombie Ghost Dad as foretold in a dream. I don't know what else you want from this book. It's telling you exactly what it is in the opening two pages. (laughs) Between that cover and that fiction... There should be no surprises as to what is contained therein. Did you have any uh, any thoughts about the opening <laughs> fiction, Adam? Uh, yeah, well, the prelude fiction, I thought it could have benefited from a second pass from a more careful editor. I mean, it, it wasn't bad. It just was rough around the edges. And the idea of zombies at sea, I mean, after some of the weird fiction I've read from the early 20th century, I just thought it clicked. It's like, yeah, true to source material. So how about the intro? It starts out with a little note that says, after all, you can't farm the sea. You can't walk on it. You can't shape it to your liking. And above all, you can't even survive underwater for long. True, except for I like the fact that we get an exception to literally every one of those things from one of the night folk that are described within. But basically it's saying, hey, why should we have a boat game? And it's saying boats are weird. And if you don't think they're a good setting for horror, well, you're a dummy. Yeah, take that. You don't know things. So my questions are, will I be able to find stories that are sea native 
will I have stories that are adventures on the sea and will it give me appropriate systems? There's also kind of this idea that it's like, why are we so fixated on horror? And then you're like, oh yeah, it's the world of darkness. I guess that's kind of their jam. I'm used to the, to the world of May where it's like, this is a horror game where I've trained sentient cats to teach people in the public how to weave. <laughs> so I forget that there's kind of different tones between games sometimes. Um, and that's into the introduction. This is, that's a real shorty. Any thoughts on the introduction? I like the basic premise. Nautical stories of all kinds used to be popular, regular, as well as, as horror stories. There are a lot of horror stories based around ships and, and ocean voyages and small islands. One thing that springs to mind that was not mentioned in this book is William Hope Hodgson wrote several nautical horror stories that are still spoken of well today by a lot of different bloggers. But uh, on to chapter one. Chapter one is entitled Seas of Darkness, and it starts with something it calls the chain of being. And the basic question is going to be, every type of supernatural has its, like, juice. So vampires need, like, like a human blood snack, and wraiths need pathos, and mages need quintessence, but not really. And it's like, so how, how does that work in the ocean? And it says that quintessence accumulates in places called grottos, which are undersea caverns, which are guarded by entities known as Rarquil, and I will probably mispronounce that 10,000 times. I'm assuming it's pronounced the same way as the genus of finback whales, but I don't I don't know. Rarquils are sentient. They have a variety of powers. They are very tied to processing quintessence and getting it to people. You can be a Rarquil player character, and they are described as being like kind of smart, possibly slightly glowing versions of existing large sea creatures. And this seems to be kind of a more mammally thing. The other thing that kind of throws me off is they're like, oh yeah, there are these places called grottos. And it's like, wow, that could be like many, 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 many miles away in the ocean, especially in like the open water area. But that is the system for moving quintessence around. And that's fine. Workrolls can be player characters for a one-shot and bygone bestiary and werewolf storyteller guide are recommended as sources for that. And then we get a blow-by-blow blow of every major body of water in the world and the weird things supernatural people are doing in them. The Arctic is listed as devoid of life. It's not quite true because there's really no part of the Earth that doesn't have a wildly complicated ecosystem full of life. The Nefandi have sunken chantries here to be close to their masters. I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. The younger brother says that there's a severed talon of the worm that lives here. The Shadowlands have spectral patrols, and even sometimes the Sabbat goes north. The children of Lilith may be here. But we get this idea in Dead Magic 2 that the Arctic gauntlet is quite thin. Then we get the Atlantic Ocean. We get the Sargasso Sea. It's a blue area of high salt with slow water, which people thought was caused by the Sargassum, this kind of oceanic weed there. It says the compasses point to true north here, and there is little large life. Okay. Rockwell here are relatively rare. The ships left here in the Shadowland have fallen to oblivion, and the power of specters have been reworked to harness the power of seaweed. So if you need a terrifying new arch-villain, the guy who has harnessed the power of seaweed, I think, is an obvious option for your group of adventurers. We get information about the Bermuda Triangle, which is the triangle of southern Florida, Bermuda, and roughly Puerto Rico. It contains part of the Sargasso Sea. And that the gauntlet can drop to one on a moonlit night. Things wander into and out of the umbra here. In the Mediterranean, the followers of Set and the Asamites control shipping. The La Sombra and the Black Furies are quite common here. The Roquet are fine with eating your periodic chorus, Roquea being the were sharks from Werewolf the Apocalypse. The followers of Set and the Asamites 
our Vita control, the shipping that goes in and out of it within the Baltic. It is viewed as a heavily polluted industrial waste zone and is stalked by spirits in the Umbra, which and is cut in half by Baba Yaga's shadow curtain, causing vampiric ships to lose power and Rokea to be attacked by front spirits. In the Caribbean, this is home of the necropolis of Port Royal, which is teeming with ghosts and ships. And necropolis is kind of an underworld city for ghosts in the Shadowlands. A lot of vampire activity here, as well as a searings of the merfolk, which call it home, and that there are Rokea and Mokole here within the Indian Ocean. We have the Persian Gulf, which has become toxic and has forced out all of its native merfolk along the Australian coast. The Rokea and the Mokole patrol regularly. Chilvorius has spread over the Barrier Reef. We'll get into what that is more later. And Pentax is doing some sketchy stuff within the Pacific Ocean. The Sea of Japan is hospitable to casual supernaturals, and the Samebito are the local version of were sharks. Grottos contain entrance to the Dragon Kingdom of Umi, which is a draconic umbral realm, so that's cool. It is not completely under control of the Yellow Springs, which is to say, in the, the Wraith setting, this area's Shadowlands is not completely controlled by the kind of Chinese dominant Dark Kingdom the area led by Qingxi Huangdi or a ghost purporting to be that person. I like that the Philippine Sea is constantly misspelled and I don't know why. I was trying to find, oh, did we used to spell it differently? Mm, nope, just wrong. It is not clearly controlled by the Shen, which is the kindred of the East term for night folk. And it is an area to kind of collect information on the Kuijin. We then get a little bit more information on the Mariana Trench that the Earth Frontier Division has explored it, as have many traditionalists, believing it to be the portal to the chasm or the abyss, which are regions of the Umbra. It either contains vast expanses or illusions of vast expanses of alien cities. So I like that. There's never been any real documentation. The one remote vessel sent into it came back covered in giant dents. Project Deepwater is located here. It is a joint Pentex technocracy facility that has been corrupted by Chilvoriosis and is spreading banality to destroy the city of Zinquix, causing myrrh to drown. The Rokea are planning to kind of destroy it. There is no Atlantis really mentioned, and that's never been a huge thing in the world of darkness compared to kind of how it is used as a metaphor, at least in Chronicles of Darkness. But that's kind of the tour of the oceans. The next question is kind of like what happens on it. And one of the ideas they present is that the ocean hasn't changed in a while. You can go for a long time with no human interaction. We get some information on famous pirates who may or may not still be around. There's a seven-foot-tall decapitated spirit of Blackbeard that still plies off the Carolina coast. Stead Bonnet is a Lysambra pirate trying to get revenge on Blackbeard. And Rackham, Bonnie, and Reed are three rays that were also famous pirates, with Bonnie and Reed being lady pirates, which was comparatively rare, but no one wanted to mess with them, so no one really brought it up. It also mentions that polluted places may have their own native adapted populations who abide the waters for access to nearby prey. The example it gives of this is like New York Harbor. Shores tend to be the most friendly to outsiders and is also the area most affected by mortals. Next, we have reefs and breakwaters, which are either barrier islands that form or Coral places made by billions of tiny polyps. Further out, we have the continental shelf where the continent slowly descends under the water. Instead, it may drop off quickly, like on the Pacific Ocean. Then we have an ocean basin where you have four to five miles of kind of open water in most places. And ocean life is, tends to be concentrated in the first 600 feet or so where sunlight still penetrates. We get an aside on some interesting wrecks and how they tend to be the locus of activity. And some of these I think are pretty neat. And they just define a wreck as any structure that has been taken by 
the waves. And this includes Southern Cape May, New Jersey, which was kind of just let go to the waves and is in the Atlantic Ocean at this point, and Bertha Kay, which is a down bomber and fetter for its ghost crew. We also get the idea that sometimes these wrecks are used as the start by the merfolk to construct great coral cities of sprawling, colorful bioluminescence. Rounding out the chapter, we get information on kind of what each of the night folk are up to. Within the Camarilla, we have the Mariner Gangrel, who are kind of water-adopted, and the Nosferatu, who often maintain a network of flooded tunnels. The Tremere have some sort of ocean chantry at the bottom of the Atlantic, but that is a front to the Masasa war that I really want to see some information on. Like, water hermetics versus ghost vampires, go! The Sabbath apparently have an alternative initiation where someone gets buried in water. Some rites, which are vampires that lose all of their humanity instead of kind of going crazy, just walk into the sea, which I guess for certain definitions would also be another type of crazy. We find out that among the werewolves, the Bonars are most familiar with the ocean, followed by the Glasswalkers, and this is a rare case where the Bonars are given respect. Good to know. With mages, we find out that the Hermetics have the uh, Chantry and Node ship of the Verditious, and the Aetherites have at least one vessel called Ahab ghost. There is a group of cultists who view tropical and arctic waters as wonderful ways to hone senses and experience. The technocracy has several projects and the progenitors operate across what they refer to as the Miami Connection, a route for drugs and money from South America through to the Caribbean through to the southern United States. Iteration X has a fleet of hydrofoils, which was just a sentence that they're like, yep, cyberboats, while the NWO likes operating out of international waters. I like the idea that the NWO is just operating like giant border blaster pirate radio stations out there, and they're just like playing Rush 24-7 or something like that. We get a callback to Dracus Valor, the Nefondic Chantry, Beneath the Waves from Book of Chantries. This, this book goes to the fifth gear for Wraith, where it's like the Shadowlands seas are boring, and the barrier between the Tempest and the Shadowlands are quite thin. Also remember that oceans are a hard place to enforce the dictum mortuum, but all darkest kingdoms have ghost fleets. Major wrecks get retrofitted and get changed into battleships. Also remember that in Wraith, water is largely solid to wraiths, so they can walk across it slowly. Swimming can be quite difficult for a wraith unless they have the merit drowned, indicating that they died having drowned. And you're like, oh, that's a merit? Okay. We get some information on changelings where the myrrh are the most common, but some issue ply the waves and some slua claim to be able to survive underwater. Knockers tend to make these Jules Verne-esque ships and other stranger kith can spend time in water. Apparently in the world of darkness, tuna is mostly just dolphin. They make a point of being like, Pentax doesn't care about dolphins. Yet another reason to not like them. Yeah. And they're investigating what the rock roll are to try and harness them. It also mentions that hunters are a thing. You could kill stuff on the ocean. No one will stop you. Yep. We get an undersea version kind of of the triad. We get the fish father, Vatia, who is this kind of cloud made of fish and kind of represents bony fish. Quarrel is the bearer of all non-bony kind of oceanic creatures like jelly squids and octopoids. And then we have the shelled one who covers those with shells and such. Which, my way of reading this, is like, screw you mammals. You don't get to be in our treehouse. Okay. We get some information on the deep sea Umbra. It is a bizarre and kaleidoscopic place, and spirits occupy the great colony called Sea. Fish spirits called Apsarae follow you around in great schools, and they tend to go further down than you would expect. Also, as you go down and there's less light, there's also less pressure, and you just kind of wind up floating in the deep Umbra, and I thought that was interesting. 
The average gauntlet is is around five, or it can be two or one in a grotto. In the penumbra, you need a way to breathe, but once you have a way to breathe, it will last indefinitely. So a scuba tank will never run out of air, or a rebreather will always be able to keep going. In the Shadowlands, as I said, water is solid, so the ocean is more desert, and the ocean tends to act more like water in ports and piers. Further out, it gets more solid. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it sounds like a cool thing. The last thing we have in this chapter is Project Deepwater. In 1910, the Earth Frontier Division wanted an ocean base, but the Syndicate and the NWO wanted them to finish exploring space first. Yes, of the two things that can be easily checked off of a list, explore space is clearly the easier one than the finite volume of ocean that is already on the planet we live on. In the 1920s, a premium oil drilling expert called Mr. Klieg found the plans and proposed funding in exchange for mining rights. In the 30s, it was under construction and almost completed in the 50s with the idea of bringing millions of gallons of oil up from the deep ocean. This met resistance from workers being attacked constantly by sharks, including an entire shift where only their hands remained. Uh, that was pretty metal. In comes Project Iliad with their oceanic adapted workers called genes, also referred to as sharks. And as with all good technocratic terms, genes is an abbreviation. It opens in the 1970s to all conventions, except for that it is clear that the NWO and the syndicate aren't welcome, which is kind of impressive. And they're like, any convention can come here, except for this too. And there's only five of us. So that's like 40%. So yeah, it will theoretically open to the public in 2010. Someone should investigate how that turned out. Mr. Klieg looks like he's in league with the Cholvoria, which are these weird oceanic infectious agents to slowly spread its taint to the population above, while the technocracy views it as a place to perfect technology and dominate the seas. It is a giant white pyramid on stilts with drills at each corner. In the Umbra, it is a crawling mass of umbral spirits of stasis, and in the Shadowlands, it's a giant mass of dead fish and impenetrable soup. If you make it into the structure itself, it is just fine, but literally everything on it is dead. And that's the end of a very rapid-moving, very dense, idea-filled, pretty creative chapter one. What did you think about it, Adam? Yeah, there certainly was a lot in here. I thought it was interesting how they took the notion of nodes, cairns, freeholds in the ocean and said, yeah, they're kind of there. We call them grottos, but they're few in number, quite inaccessible, and we want to acknowledge the fact that most sea creatures move around instead of defending territory like a lot of land creatures do. And so they said, we're going to have these uh, these big peaceful creatures called rorquals that they do the difficult task of accessing the grotto and then they soak up the quintessence gnosis, what have you, and they move around and then other, they, they basically visit the merfolk and they, they visit the uh, rokea, were sharks and, and other supernatural creatures. And those creatures like swim up to them and touch them and they get the juice off of them that way. And so they suggest all these possible stories of defending the Rorquals or guiding the Rorquals to where they need to go if, if uh, you know something changes. And so it, it could be interesting. It, it makes ocean chronicles different than land chronicles. And yeah, I'm, I'm open to that. I thought the overviews of oceans and seas was, was quite good. There's some interesting things going on there. I, I thought it was creative and they didn't uh, dwell over long on anything. So I, I was pleased to see that. Undersea Triad can be a nice addition for games uh, with were creatures. However, if you don't have were creatures, then the Undersea Triad is I, I just don't see how it's going to add much to your game. Project Deepwater, I thought was nice for possibilities. And it's supposed to be a cooperation between Pentex, which are the villains from Werewolf uh, the Apocalypse, and Technocracy. 
but it's easy to just pull the Pentex element out of it, say it's just the technocracy, and I think it works fine. It works for the same purposes and in the same ways. So uh, I, I like seeing that. I thought it was uh, pretty interesting. When you talk about you know deep ocean stuff, the name Marianas Trench just keeps coming up. It's it's the deepest point in, in any ocean that, that we know of at this point. And so it's natural that people are going to attract their attention there. And so this, this book uh, goes all out and says, hey, it's, it's a really dark, really mysterious place. Not many people know what's going on in there. Even the technocracy doesn't have the resources to send many people down there. And even they are worried about what might come out of there. So I, I just thought it was, it was pretty cool. It gave me some material that I, I wouldn't mind working with at all. But on to chapter two. Chapter two is entitled Denizens. And this goes over the denizens. The opening note that the sea creatures aren't magically friends, Mur are rightfully terrified of Rokea, and the Gangrel view the Rorkel as a particularly tasty snack. Good. I like that. I don't want this Oceanic Super Friends game. We first get information on the Marinum Gangrel, which are ocean-adapted versions of the Gangrel, which is one of the clans in Vampire who tend to be more uh, bestial and tied to the wild. They tend to pick up animalistic traits like serrated teeth scales, maybe a beak, and they lose social stats faster as they gain animal traits. They are listed as exceedingly rare with 30 worldwide, which makes them three to five times more common than the children of knowledge as a note. So maybe we need a team up there. Also known as the Gangrel Aquarii, they feed on sharks and whales and tend to only interact with mortal society if there's a shipwreck or a drunken beach party. Uh, some are stationary and some are migratory, moving up and down coastlines. We get Machete Paul, who controls the waters of New York docks and doesn't like other kindred swimming in his water. As a note, New York City, this is just the city, has 520 miles of coastline. So good luck, Paul. We get the Black Banner fleets, and this is another one of those ideas where I'm like, Nice. I think this has actually been established elsewhere in vampire lore, but the Sombra are strangely tied to the sea, possibly due to the oceanic ties of Obtenebrate. That is their discipline. A discipline is the kind of the special thing that makes a given vampire clan cool. And Obtenebrate is the ability to manipulate shadows and is notionally tied to the abyss. And they tend to be reckless when around water. They control most shipping in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean and have an impressive number of ships. They also have three kilo-class submarines and may have been involved in the drowning of a Ventru yacht. The Anti-Tribu also have a pirate fleet in the Caribbean, which consists generally of a vampire, a vampirically bound second-in-command, and a bunch of either dominated or ghouled crew members, as well as mercenaries. And most have been convinced that their ca captain is mortal, either through repeated use of dominate or some sort of illusion. We get information on Captain Kleist, who is in charge of the 270-foot Black Aegis, which has a crew of 80 ghouls and mercenaries and is registered as a research vessel, but also has a 76-millimeter, approximately 3-inch gun on it. So that's pretty cool. We get a list of tribes and where they're active and it's one of those things where it's like ah oh, the fianna control the ports of ireland and you're like well that that wasn't really a stretch thanks book the rokea are listed as possibly being more numerous than the garu and i thought that was kind of neat like it makes sense if there's a vastly more oceanic volume than there is land area. We get a little information on other changeling breeds like the Gural ice stalkers of the arctic the Gural are werebears. We get some information on mages that life three will adapt you to the pressures of the deep give you gills and let you have sonar that matter too will let you make a rebreather without difficulty spirit magic is very easy with the relatively thin gauntlet of the ocean 
And entropy tends to make small failures catastrophic, like rusting someone's scuba equipment. We get a kind of a normal walkthrough of what traditions do what where. Some like the ocean for isolation. Others want a different view on life. Others are connected to oceanic culture. And the hermetics need a place to keep their yachts. And I'm like, yep, okay. You know, you understood the assignment. The Society of Ether has two ships, Ahab's Ghost and the Electric Prospero. The latter has etheric cannons and an electrified hull. No one actually knows the name of the captain. And everyone's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've met him before. Nice guy. What's his name? I don't know. Let's not. Let's change topic suddenly. So I thought those were interesting invites. Nice reference to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where the captain was named Nemo, which means no one. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, neat. I didn't know that. This was written before any of the revised convention books where the oceans are very important to the technocracy as after the Avatar storm, oceanic sea bases are a opportunity for the technocracy to continue research in a relatively low paradox environment. They tend to kill local myrrh with their banality. And the mechanism here is that if a underwater changeling comes too close to a high banality mortal, they will be stripped of their fey mane, which means they lose the ability to breathe underwater and they kind of just drown. We get information on the current director of the EFD, Isabel Dubé, who is active and tends to be hands-on. We also get the idea that the Nefandi like the ocean, as it is a good metaphor for the desire to face the void. We get information on Zia Quetal Labyrinth off the coast of Santa Barbara, where semi-symbiotic mollusks are shoved onto your face to get there. Alternatively, if you're a sleeper, they may just drug you because that's easier. We get a bunch of information on wraiths. They tend to be stuck a thousand miles away from home as drownings tend to be far, which often leads them to give into the call of their shadows, which is interesting as they're left largely alone. Uh, rays that go down a shipwreck rarely have the will to remove their own call and tend to simply drift around the wreckage site until someone finds them. Relic ships are immensely valuable for their cargo, hull, and crew. Uh, so the idea in Wraith is that if something dies with a strong emotional resonance to it, it may appear in the underworld, and it is very hard to get useful things in the underworld. As they say, a lot of people get tied to a teddy bear, and that crosses over with them, less so with ammunition. So when a ship crosses over that may be full of useful cargo, that is highly valued. Mort rights are more common, and niles that lead to oblivion are more common, meaning boarding actions often involve a lot of risk. And just about every legion is suggested to have a group that kind of goes out and looks for wrecks. Some ships can become haunts, especially if their destruction was noteworthy. A haunt is a place inhabited by wraiths. They give the examples of the Lusitania, the Bismarck, the General Belgrano, the Prince Alexei, and such. Uh, relic capital ships become flagships, and the Iron Legion holds the Arc Royale, which was destroyed in the 80s, and it gives some information on that. We also get information that the Titanic is controlled by specters, and Lusitania is controlled by the hierarchy. We get information on Stygian slave vessels and how they're not great. Some ships go renegade and mutiny until someone works up their will to remove their call and leads their ship to explore the Sunless Sea. We learn about the Broken Chain, which is a group that liberates enslaved wraiths and punishes their crew that were involved in the Atlantic slave trade. We also get some information about how the ocean works with other dark kingdoms like the Dark Kingdom of Ivory and the Flayed Lands of South America. We also get Boat skills, boat arcanoi, boat relics, crab spirits, and a shroud table. So everything you would need for Ocean Wraith. We also get information on the sea changelings. 
this section is dense and it suddenly switches to in-world fiction with little information and internal inconsistencies and references to other things and inside jokes tied to the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, my reading pace kind of came to a crawl here and I, it was one of the few cases where I shook my fist and went, Changeling! So it has the legend that Dagon and Vatia were ocean creatures and they were the only two entities that existed and they were curious to see what was happening in the not-ocean, which they refer to as Nazi, which is not great to read out loud and say repeatedly on a podcast. So Vatia dreamed of a brood of creatures from the boring lands, but they dried up and returned to the oceans as Absaray, uh, while Dagon dreamed of his own Maruka, which are kind of this angry, unseelie merfolk kind of things. As humans spread their banality, they killed ocean dwellers and eventually bred with humans. And that was a very weird passage to read. The Maruka have a legend that the land will sink and Dagon again will wake. They tend to have um, whale-sized freeholds or possibly in whales. Whale freeholds was kind of mentioned. Vatia's trench was taken and let off again, which is to say the Mariana Trench, and that let off a kind of a wave of banality that destroyed a lot of local Mur society. They have this interesting ritual that they kind of draw themselves directly back to the Puaha Dadanan, or at least the true Fae saying that they never underwent the changeling way. They don't really breed with mortals in the same way. They have a brood. The baby neroids will come into the world. They will be kind of these weird little translucent goo babies. And at a certain age, they will be placed in a grotto. And the next creature that enters the grotto will determine their tie to an animal. If it is a jelly or a squid, the kid turns into kind of a maruka. If it tends to be something more warmer and cuddlier, they tend to be mer. I wasn't quite sure what the relationship between the term mer and merfolk was because mer was a kith, but sometimes merfolk meant both. I wasn't quite sure on that. If you're looking for more information that is a bit more straightforward, I recommend you go to the White Wolf Wiki where everything you need is there. The mer tend to be arrogant and regal in bearing, where the maruka tend to be more vicious. The mer tied to pretty ocean creatures and the maruka not so much. They both create great cities, which may be either beautiful works of sculpted coral and bioluminescent creatures, if you are a mer, or uh, dark warrens of impenetrable darkness and difficult to understand labyrinths if you are a Maruka. We get information on, the, on their courts. House Lorelei represents Dagon and her hunters and warriors. House Musoline represents the Sheld One and her scholars. And House Syrinx are the chosen of Atia and our leaders and its nobles. We also get new arts of Aphrodisia, Kiros, and Skycraft. So it was an interesting addition. If you want a fully fleshed out supernatural type that spends a lot of time underwater, you now have these two kiths to play with. And if you would like some confusing text in in-world voice that is difficult to follow, you now have the end of this chapter. What did you think about this chapter, Adam? Again, there was a lot of material here that I liked. The aquatic gangrel vampires called Mariners. I, I thought they were a cool idea. Uh, if you're running uh, Vampire Chronicles, it can be an interesting sort of third party or complication to faction politics. And even if you're running Mage, I mean, I, I'm not against occasionally pulling in some vampires, and I think uh, Mariners can be an interesting way to do that. I do not remember hearing about the uh, La Sombra anti-tribute fleet. I thought that was a cool idea. Uh, not only do La Sombra vampires of the Sabbat, you know, go to the seas and they operate ships and they do some interesting things out there, but the La Sombra anti-tribute, the ones who left the Sabbat and are friendly to the Camarilla, they've got a, a small fleet in the Caribbean. 
and they're causing trouble and you know raising eyebrows as it were out there and so i i just thought that was a neat idea i like the rokea but they're so hard to use in games there wasn't a full write-up of rokea in this chapter but it does mention them of course there, there's a separate changing breed book for them which i don't remember reading myself but i've always thought the rokea were, were really cool as a storyteller i'm willing to create specific situations where they are motivated to talk to players because if, if the players are out at sea, I just think it's it's a fun thing to be able to involve them. The short section titled Practical Matters gives um, some brief advice on how rotes and magic effects can be very beneficial at sea or certain ones are going to give certain benefits. And although it was a short section, I, I thought it was very well thought out. It gave me some interesting ideas to build on as a storyteller, so I certainly appreciate it. For Wraith players, a whole new chronicle is opened up here. There is so much Wraith material material here. Wraith at this time in 1999 was was winding down. Unlike Changeling, which got sort of an extension on its second edition, Wraith pretty much clamped down and, and there were no more books coming out as far as I know except for perhaps a rare few. But uh, here in this book, the writers at White Wolf are saying to the Wraith fans, hey, you know, we hear you, we know what you're going through, uh, here's some cool material to take your Wraith Chronicles out to the ocean, and just, just so much there for them. As Terry said, there's two new kiths for Changeling. I agree the in-character fiction was just too long, too idiosyncratic. Like, we get all this detailed information about the personalities of these little characters that only exist in this little fiction section in this book, and it, you know, learning how he likes this and doesn't like that, it's like, how's this going to help my Chronicle. I'm not using this character. <laughs> but um, the kiths are interesting. It states how the merfolk are experiencing a problem, and that's why they're trying to reach out to the regular changelings who, of course, live on land. There's a built-in way to mix the two, but if you don't want to mix them, of course, it's it's very easy to do that. I thought that was uh, very interesting. I'm, I'm not a big changeling player, but even though I'm not, I, I'm not against uh, pulling the merfolk into a uh, ocean chronicle. It, it might add some spice for a story. But... I am ready to move on to chapter three, and that is 11 pages of storyteller advice. Point of this book is to persuade storytellers to take their game to the seas, so this chapter has an important job to do. The first chapter and quotes throughout the book help us see the oceans as intimidating and alien places. The first section of this chapter informs us supernaturals at sea are few and far between. They claim little in the way of territory, unlike vampires and werewolves on land. Tracking an opponent after it attacks your ship or island is often impossible. Moods you can craft include mystique and helplessness. Mystique comes from the way weather dramatically impacts everything nearby, the feelings of isolation, and the fact there's a lot beneath the surface that you just can't see. Helplessness is something your players can gradually realize. Moving water is unbelievably strong. Help is far away, and many tools and equipment are useless. Storytellers are told to let their players see how little their supernatural powers over wind and wave change things. Being able to move a massive boulder, for example, is impressive, but when countless boulders are rolling down the slope, you start to get the real picture. The author suggests two themes. Related to the mood of helplessness is the theme of the unknown. Whether looking at the ship's instruments or swimming, it's hard to get information on your opponents or even what's around you. Whether technological or natural, Sonar tells you something is approaching, but what that something is, is a mystery. Sight is limited by depth and smell is easily confused. 
One injury and the smell of blood overwhelms everything else in the water. Thus equipped, storytellers can make a scene very tense indeed. The other theme is vastness. Mage books have described the immense emptiness of the deep umbra and the huge mysteries it contains. The ocean offers the same closer to home. Middle of the Atlantic or Pacific can host country-sized problems. How can even level five spheres take on something like that? A mage can become a big fish in the city with some work, but at sea, every mage is a flea on a whale's back. Next is a section on taking regular chronicles to sea for a diversion. The author notes most games are on land and then says, unless you're running an umbral game, yes, in 1999 there were people at White Wolf who understood me. Anyways, when taking existing chronicles to sea for part of the plot, we're told to plan ahead. Yeah, I, I could have guessed that. <laughs> when using the sea for a player or NPC side story, we're told there's lots of possibilities and to keep the other players involved. Once again, th this is pretty obvious. As a change of pace, a story at sea can reinforce the notion that the world of darkness is an immense and frightening place. That works for me and is worth mentioning. To buttress the thin material we just read, there are four story hooks. Two cool ones are an NPC contact falls prey to the cooler via and vampire yacht hijackers. It's bad enough they're after your blood, but your yacht too? That's going too far. A short section on individual stories written for the sea tells us player characters with very different backgrounds can hang together for a short time. That opens up possibilities. The following section focuses on chronicles written for the sea. There's advice for vampires, were-sharks, East Asian were-sharks, sons of ether, void engineers, wraiths, and changeling merfolk. The author admits Rokea-focused chronicles are hard, but mix in some mokole, put them in a coastal town. It could work. A literal fish-out-of-water chronicle has my interest. Giving a submersible to a son of ether and letting other mages tag along sounds awesome to me. If you can talk your players into letting go of Ascension War politics for a while, the many adventures deep down will no doubt hit the spot. Mentioning 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at this point is not cliche. It's a great source of ideas. Just make sure you read the Naval Institute Press translation uh, from the French. Void Engineers are a great technocracy alternative to the Submarine Chronicle. The friendliest ocean chronicle would be Changeling Merfolk. They're at home down there, so there's less stress and danger. Their remote nature from landbound changelings means you don't have to be a changeling expert to make this work. Uh, historical chronicles could include the Mediterranean Sea in Roman times, Viking raiders, Caribbean pirates, and 19th century steamships. We finish with four general purpose story ideas. Uh, East Asian were-sharks, a want a roarquel, volcanic activity on the sea floor, and a race with wraiths and their relic ship. My favorite is, predictably, something strange coming out of the deep umbra and shaking things up. Weaver or paradox spirits try to seal up the breach and add to the complications. My thoughts on this chapter, good but not excellent. The mood and theme material is solid. The story ideas may help some people, but they aren't exceptional. Systems for diving, drowning, etc. are in the appendix, so don't worry about that. I'd like to see the high-level advice trimmed down considerably to make room for more detailed story ideas. I think this chapter could have offered more on that topic. Uh, so, Terry, what were your thoughts on chapter three? Uh, it starts out by saying that supernaturals aren't everywhere, which I'm just assuming is an attack on vampire. It says that the ocean is has a timelessness to it. Sure. I do like the idea that we could combine the Arctic chapter from Dead Magic to have a World of Darkness, Nature Just Doesn't Like You Sometimes book that could have come out. It, it mentions kind of the theme of the unknown being a thing, but I don't think it gives us enough information on like how to craft something new and weird. Like everything already fits into a box. Like everything brought up here fits neatly into one of the supernatural types. There's no weird other unexplainable thing. We don't get like strange manifestations of oceanic urban legends. Everything turns out to be a 
wraith, vampire, changeling, mage, or werewolf. So I would have liked a little bit more in there. Like in the changeling chapter, they talk about how everything in the ocean is kind of the same. It has kind of a different term. Nothing really new felt like it was coming out in terms of um, the description of place there, again, except for the grottos and the rorquals. It tells me that I need to limit my senses, except for like, it's like mages are like, oh no, everything is dark and closing in on us. Wait, 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 I have life too. We're good. It seems like for like the mage approach to a lot of these topics, it's either like, yes, this can be a dark foreboding place of quick death, eh, unless you have these two relatively common spheres, which completely obviate all the damage to it. So, uh, yeah. Uh, there wasn't enough information on like the liminal place between sea and land. Like shore towns are weird little places. New England fishing villages are weird little places. California beach resorts are weird little places and bio coastal communities are weird little places. I was really hoping we would get information on those and it wouldn't just be like deep fathomless ocean. But again, it's 130 pages and it's pretty dense with stuff. So it's not like there's a thing where I would say, yeah, cut this except for the in-character changeling section, which would have freed up possibly dozens of pages. But still, I would have liked information on like moving between the two. Like how does a port work? How does a large shipping vessel work? They're kind of worlds unto themselves. And I think that could justify a one or two page thing. Is this a sign that I got utterly spoiled? with Sorcerer's Crusade, where they're like, here's two pages on how a farm works. Here's another page on hat technology. And I'm like, oh man, how did you look into my soul? I did like that they're like, you can have a beach episode. Like it's a sitcom. I like that. All of the themes and moods are tied to perils and it doesn't give you enough reasons to go there. This is also the criticism I have frequently with like umbral descriptions where it's like, this is a dark despair realm of sadness and hate. And why, why would my players ever go there? Give me the cool thing that's there. Give me the reason like, oh yeah, grottos are there and they're largely untapped by mortals. And there's hundreds or thousands of free points of quintessence that people can fight over or something like that. There are oceanic treasures. There are oceanic forges. Uh, it is a common place to build wonders because of the low paradox or something like that. Like, I don't feel like it gave me a bunch of reasons on how to run plot. Once my characters already had a reason to be on the ocean, they didn't give me enough reasons to be on in or near the ocean in the first place, in my opinion. And those were my, my thoughts on the chapter. All right. Well, let's take a look at chapter four. Chapter four is entitled Lurkers. Returning listeners will know that one of my greatest joys in looking at a book is complaining about how animal statistics Make no sense. Sea lions weigh thousand pounds. Give them more than brawl one. Because <laughs> they can just kind of crush a car. Give them more than brawl one. So animals are always weird. My recommendation in general is to uh, look at Wikipedia, some information and realize how big these things are. Uh, people fail to consider the largest carnivore that is on land at all. It, People were like, oh, it's the polar bear. And I'm like, no, it's the southern elephant seal, which can weigh like 11,000 pounds. That is 18 times heavier than a polar bear. <laughs> Give some respect to pinnipeds and their ability to just kind of, uh, to just kind of crush you. So anyway, Ter Terry complaining about animal stats again. The, uh, the next bit is it gives us some information on spirits, kind of get the basic triadic spirits of scuttlers for the weaver, luminescence for the wild and oceanic banes. I like that, that there are something called spiral schools that tend to protect Rorquils. We get Kerwu, Tooth Edge, and Incarna of Coral and Reef that is royal, a spear that can puncture an ocean liner. That's cool. 
We get aquatic mori, which are creatures that are infected with bane spirits. We have the poison sharks. What's so scary about the ocean? It's like, oh, there's animals there, but uh, who cares about the animals? You're like, no, no, no. In the world of darkness, there's something called poison sharks. Like just in case a great white shark isn't enough, it also will give you gangrene or something like that. Page 103 and 104, I thought had very effective art that was good to see describing the giant creatures to be found there. And we get the idea of the diving dead, which are kind of these drowned creatures that you can sick on people. It turns out that the genes, those creatures that were used to complete Project Deepwater, are paradox-free because they're actually just Bane spirits. And you're like, aw, that's sad. Uh, we get a section on ancient beasts and gigantic squids if you need like a, a boss-tier opponent. I like the role-playing notes for this are eat, catch and crush any light that comes close, eat. Okay. And then we get information on the Chilvoria, which is a form of spirit contagion that wishes to spread its own taint. They are viewed as a sign from quarrel that it has fallen to the worm. Uh, humans infected by this weird oceanic sickness become squid-like with more alien features and more cunning and less intelligence. Suckers occur on their hands. And this is a disease that like progresses over centuries. These creatures have weird motives. The infection can also infect cephalopods, so octopuses, squids, and so on, where they gain intelligence and may pick up human traits like green eyes or fingernails. It is specifically left vague. The enfolded are the human shock troops and are of low status. Teeth form into a beak or mottled skin. They move to the depths at when they can no longer Passes humans. The Terranos are the puppeteers and are Nautiluses, octopuses, and so on that can drill through the skull and the brainstem, listed as doing uh, aggravated damage whenever they come in contact with mortals. They have the ability to kind of control a person like a puppet. It's very hard to separate once that happens. We get the Chilvorian elders, which are big tentacle things, each with a unique look, and they want black water to cover the land and extinguish all fires above. I thought this was an interesting idea. If you need another weird oceanic threat, you may find it too campy. You may find it to be a great embodiment of the creeping taint of the world of darkness and so on. And you kind of get everything that you need here. I think it needed a little more structure to use as an antagonist in a game, maybe with a little more variety, or maybe to indicate that it is harder to figure out what's going on. If this is one of those things where it's like, you want to have that creeping suspicion scenario but you can tell who the bad guy is with life one that feels much less menacing to me. So uh, some sort of way to keep themselves enshrouded, I think would have been cool. But chapter four had a bunch of things. We get a bunch of stat blocks and overall, I'm not going to complain. What do you think about chapter four, Adam? Yeah. Also when it comes to chapter four, again, I, uh, a lot of things uh, that I thought were very interesting here, very worthwhile. There are six umbral spirits. I thought that was few, but their connection to the middle umbra makes sense. There is a coral reef, a higher level middle umbra spirit called Paku Ru Tooth Edged. And it, it talked about how if you get on its good side, she'll give you a, a really cool spear or something. And I thought that was it was too simplistic. Paku Ru Tooth Edged is intrinsically linked to coral reefs. And these are complicated amalgams of living things, very complicated, compact ecospheres. I think mages would have much more to learn from a coral reef spirit than just, hey, you can have a nice spear. But I think uh, an enterprising storyteller can, can fill those blanks. I thought the Formori powers were great. Storytellers need to make monsters, and bygone bestiary is really just for land creatures. So if you want more bygone bestiary kind of water creatures, I think this is a handy place to come in, look at the Formori powers, you know, pick something off, and uh, make it work for you. 
I think the fiction in front of each of the five monster write-ups was... It was just filler. It was not helpful. If you cut out that fiction block before each of the five monsters, it would just make the chapter read easier and easier for a storyteller to, to uh, reference before starting a game. So it's a great space saver. There are a number of uh, monsters here which are supposed to be general purpose uh, opponents for pretty much any World of Darkness game. And I was noticing that if these monsters don't have rapid healing, they are no kind of threat to werewolves. So if you're running Werewolf the Apocalypse or some other kind of were creatures, then uh, these opponents are going to need to be beefed up with some rapid healing. But I mean, other than that, I thought there was a lot of interesting things here. Now, I I did sign an agreement. I have to uh, pronounce everything differently than Terry. <laughs> the, the strange uh, squid creatures, I, I thought it was, my, my imagining of how it would be pronounced was Cooler Vaya. They get a write-up here. I thought it was really cool. Now, I was initially thinking that they made their first appearance in a revised edition mage book, and I, I liked them at the time. But no, their, their first appearance was here, and that material was copied over to the revised edition book just you know for those people who didn't pick up Blood Dim Tides. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think a lot of mage fans uh, skipped on this book because they weren't thinking about Ocean Chronicles, but the Cooler Vaya are a great idea. I think they're great for mage games. They are mysterious. There's some suggestion about what powers they have. There's two general types of them. It really excited me and made me want to work with them. So thumbs up to the authors for, for coming up with this great idea and passing it to us. Some people might criticize the fact that it explains in the text, I'm going to give you uh, sketchy information about them. Uh, we don't want to uh, nail this down too tight so the storytellers can you know, come up with their own idea. I've, I've heard a lot of people who criticize this approach to game writing and say, look, you, you give me something specific and if I don't like it, I'll change it. Whereas other people like to keep things kind of fuzzy and up in the air so they can fill in the blanks themselves. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's fine. What they have here is, is so interesting that I'm motivated to fill in those blanks myself and, and run with that ball. That pretty much wraps up chapter four, but they have another... It's like a chapter, but they call it an appendix. I, I think... Uh, it, I would have been fine with calling it chapter five, but Terry, why don't you hit the high notes on that? Oh yeah, the mega appendix. We get systems, and then those systems get systems, and then we get a system for the systems they add to the systems. In fact, this <laughs> text is so thorough that it's like, okay, so let's all face the elephant in the room, secondary abilities such as swimming. And it's like, yeah, if you have swimming, here's a completely different system. And you're like, what? A use for secondaries? How dare you? It gives a basic <laughs> system using uh, strength and athletics to indicate how you move around in the water. And it says that if you have swimming, your rolls are made at minus one difficulty and you act as if your strength is two points higher. And it gives you other recommendations on if you have scuba as an ability and so on. And I'm like, the devil you say in terms of it making these secondaries useful. It also gives a system for diving, which just keeps going. We get information on floating and treading underwater we get information on how werewolves in crinos form really can't do much and get several hundred additional pounds of like wet fur on them after they transform and i'm like you book i didn't know i would but here i am so it just was very well thought out other books are in customary this book is in metric so i assume the oceans are in metric we get information on diving and that that's kind of interesting vampires do not breathe and they don't need to deal with these dive charts but they do specifically say that going down to 200 meters with no air tank may be considered a breach of the masquerade it specifically mentions that crinos don't float 
it calls Vampire Revised 3rd Edition, and I thought that was kind of neat. We get a bunch of diving illnesses. We get nitrogen narcosis when you have too much nitrogen dissolved when you're down for too long. We get decompression sickness or the bends when you come back up and gases come out of the blood too quickly. We get oxygen toxicity, and we get pressure-induced vitae dissociation where you start sweating blood. It specifically mentions that this does not affect ghouls or were spiders. I don't know why would it, do, it would affect were spiders, but it's good to know that it doesn't. We get incredibly detailed combat system com for the world of darkness that it's really hard to fight underwater, that strength is usually halved except when biting, that guns are really hard to use, that each shot increases the chance that the gun will fail in the next shot. Explosions are more effective, doing 50% more. We get the bang stick, which is a shotgun shell and a stick. We get the harpoon, which is a giant spear. We get the harp gun, which shoots harpoons. 10 dice if it hits you, and it may be explosive. We get information on kind of diving equipment and so on. We get a men very menacing picture of a shark that has been speared. And this was just, if you, if you need systems, I don't know what else you want. It gave them to you here. We also get merits and flaws. The, these are fine. You get motion sick. You're good with sea legs. You can't swim, so on and so forth. The biggest thing is unable to swim. We get yet another flaw that you can take that will probably never come up if you just need a few more points at character creation. I like that we get strong lungs as a merit. You can combine this from the sorcerer merit of hail, and we can have a whole bunch of old-timey merits to describe someone who is strong in the 15th century. So that's kind of nice. But I mean, it's got systems. They seemed internally consistent. If you want to shoot someone with a harpoon, we, we now got rules for that. It gave use for secondaries. I don't know what else. I don't know what else you want. So that was that was the appendix. What did you think of the of the chapter five, as it were? I thought the appendix was really good, actually. You know, as, as everyone who's been listening to the show for a while knows I'm a fan of uh, more simple rules that the storyteller judgments on as he goes, instead of a, a complex set of rules that takes care of every uh, possibility. But reading through the rules on this chapter, I think they were reasonable. I think they were helpful. Good information to know. I would use roughly half of them, but I'm glad that this that that half is there for me to use. That they did the heavy lifting that I didn't want to do myself, and I'm I appreciate that. That's why I buy these books. I thought the fatigue rules in particular can uh, help storytellers to make scenes dramatic. I remember when I I went uh, floating on inner tubes down a river in in uh, central Texas with my kids. At one point, one of my kids was was going off down a side stream instead of the main stream, and so I had to just put my feet into the water and get over and get him and pull him back. It was a couple of feet of distance and. And the water was up to my waist and it was pushing me so hard I was like fighting to even stay in one place in the water. It's like, okay, I did not think water this shallow could be this strong. And so, it, it, you know, some of those life experiences can help a storyteller kind of understand that, no, you need to emphasize this to your players. It's like, yeah, I, I know the water is only up to your knees, but do you have any idea how hard that water is pushing? It's, it's something to think about. Long story short, the fatigue rules I think are appropriate. They're going to help me to make some more dramatic scenes when I'm working with my players and so really appreciate it. I think the weapons and equipment are helpful. Now remember, listeners, don't confuse a bang stick with a boomstick. Bang sticks are for dealing with sharks. Boomsticks are for dealing with zombies. Know your equipment. I thought the merits and flaws were reasonable. I gotta admit, I don't think I would really use them myself, even if I did take my chronicle to the ocean. But I'm, I've seen a number of merits and flaws in mage books that I thought were just going too far or too unreasonable. But I, I, th I think these were good. So I think a number of storytellers might pick one or two off of this and suggest it to their players. 
so I appreciate the work done here. It's appropriate to get all of this stuff and stick it into appendix at the back, so when a storyteller is prepping for a game, it's like, oh, well, what is it, how deep do they go down before I start warning them about their dive meters? It's like, okay, it's right here in the appendix. So instead of, if they had mixed this information into chapter one or chapter two, I would be very unhappy. So good job putting this one together. I think at this point, it's time for some general ideas on, on the book as a whole. Uh, Terry, what did you think? For all, I enjoy our time with other lines because it reminds us what we like about mage it's nice to see how other people write and how other people craft a game world the appendix was terribly useful to help kind of guide intuition like i won't necessarily always use a table as given but it's good to know you can be at this depth for three or four hours before you're really going to start having problems this lets me introduce a complication into gameplay when i need to or this is approximately how hard it is to move in water it guides those intuitions which i may already have on land it was pretty dense everything in here was going to be useful for someone except for the parts that were kind of in world and i think that was partially that like we we have books like revised hollowers which is incredibly thin in terms of content here it was notable since so much of it was so dense the few parts that weren't really stuck out so take it as a compliment to the other pages that just keep going from point to point to have stuff in your game. I do think there was a lot of information that was kind of skipped regarding shore and shore communities. I think some of the areas were kind of under described. I don't think they did a really great job of painting a word picture. I don't think we got enough reasons to engage with a particular area like why your landlubbers would want to go down into the briny deep, as it were. We didn't really get like wonders or treasures or anything like that. And that kind of would have been neat to be like, hey, this is something that we're fighting over, or this is a, a thing that we're all in a race to try and find. So we have the electric Prospero versus an Iteration X hydrofoil trying to recover Vadia's cube or something before something bad happens or what have you, but it would have been nice to see a world where White Wolf got to publish more of these kind of generic location books that filled in certain things. I'm hard pressed to think of too many more that they could have done, but I certainly wouldn't have been opposed to it if we had gotten like a jungle book or a desert book or something like this. I don't know. But on the whole, good writing, it's easy to recommend if you're going to go to the ocean. It's, it's just one of those ones where it's like, yeah, you should probably thumb through this if you're going to spend any, uh, any length of time here. What did you think overall, Adam? Yeah, I like your idea about environment or area books. I've, I've read a number of uh, uh, short story pulp fiction from the early 20th century where people went up, they went overseas and they went to remote mountain areas and they were at high elevation and there just weren't many people around because of the geography and they had all these, you know, adventures there. And I think a World of Darkness book written up for that with, you know, obscure supernatural elements hiding out in, in mountainous areas, I think that would be terribly interesting. It'd be a lot of fun. Anyways, um, my thoughts on this book, after reading this book, this is why I missed the 1990s World of Darkness. It, it was just it was, it was fun. It was interesting. It was on point. It was not too long. I'm unhappy that there was so little mage material in this book, 
But what was here was just a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it, and I'm glad this book is on my shelf. Uh, I had never read it before prepping for this podcast. Now I'm so glad that I did. I would have liked to have kind of gotten into you know some more some more consideration of, of mage material, like the fact that the shore is, as Terry said, is a, a liminal place. It's kind of between two worlds, the, you know, land and sea. It's such different notions people have of that. Also, in Mage 20, we got a sort of, what is it, a, a, a template umbrood or something like that, like the man. I remember from one of the Mage 20 books. So what, what about at sea? You could have the captain or, or mm-hmm. something like that. There, there's so much, you know, if you read any nautical fiction, there's so much lore that builds up around the personality of the captain and how much power and responsibility he has over a large ship out at sea very far from anyone else. And so, you know, some kind of a page on this kind of umbrewed template character would have been interesting to me. But but again, what is here? I really did appreciate it. the writing was nice. Uh, just just reading through the book, you know, page to page, I, I just kept turning the pages and, and enjoying it. Uh, some of the Mage Twenty books, I had to you know work more to to power through the book. But this one, I was happily turning pages, uh, enjoying it. Now, okay, some of the fiction got a little out of hand, but considering the page count and how much was given over to fiction, I'm still. Well written, well done. The approach was was very reasonable. Technocracy's inability to detect worm taint in Project Deepwater uh, seemed a little odd to me, but then I, I complained at the first syndicate convention book when they were running a casino in Canada and there was riddled with worm taint and they were blissfully unaware. I, I thought that was stretching things a bit. That, that seems to be a recurring theme and, and it does recur here. I thought that out at sea, the high umbra should be harder to access than on land, and the middle umbra should be easier to access than on land. Because the high umbra, of course, is is a result of people, you know, dreaming, thinking, pondering, etc. And there's so few people out at the ocean f- over the span of so much time that I, I thought it would be interesting to say that some mage wants to, you know, uh, connect to astral space out at sea. It's like, oh, that's really, really hard. Why? Well, you know, think about it. <laughs> There's not a lot of people thinking much of anything out here for a very long time. It kind of stands to reason that you're going to have a tough time with astral space out here. But like a dream speaker wants to get into the middle umbra finds, it's just surprisingly easy so far from the coast. So I would have liked to have seen some mention of that. And I think storytellers can find ways to to put interesting scenes into their stories once they uh, start with that assumption. Also, I think an island-hopping chronicle would be a really good mix of regular mage play and this ocean-based kind of play that they suggest in this book. So you don't have to commit all in to one or the other. You can have you know roughly a 60-40 or a 50-50 mix of the two. Just keep your players moving between islands. They can spend plenty of time at sea and on boats and and diving and stuff, but then when they get onto an island, it's large enough that it's like a regular Mage Chronicle. And so I I think that's uh, one idea that I would have liked to have seen in Chapter 3, but I I had to come up with that myself. So let's see. At this point, uh, now that we've shared our general thoughts, I just wanted to dive into some story ideas. I haven't done that for a while, but I really got uh, inspired this time. Number one, the players are at sea and pick up distress calls from a submarine attached to Project Deepwater. If they come to the rescue, the grateful crew will tell them of the immense lobster-like creature that attacked them in the Mariana Trench. 
Uh, before they resume their professional demeanor, they will speak of recent attacks on their research subs and give coordinates for the Project Deepwater installation so they can be returned home. If the players observe without helping, they will get the same information from overhearing the communications between the damaged sub and their rescuers. Security procedures for communications are dropped due to the emergency. The players learn the installation is being attacked. If the players don't want to help, let them overhear that a strange sea creature is being studied before it dies of unknown causes. When the players arrive at the installation, they are welcomed. Something breached the installation and it is flooding. The installation's off-site bosses state they will not send help until security measures are properly guaranteed. The players are begged to assist. Once the flooding is over, the technocrats are isolated and fearful. They share intel and ask the players to help. They uncovered an object deep in the trench that gives off energy resembling cosmic rays. Then huge creatures they can't classify begin attacking their away teams. Can the players unlock the secret of this object before the installation is destroyed? Can they wrest it away from the technocrats? Or perhaps this will be the beginning of a secret alliance between the players Chantry and the Void Engineers. Number two, the players are approached at sea by a spirit resembling a sea creature. It directs them to a meeting with the shark people. Rokea shapeshifters state the players are touched by Kun, the fish bearer, so they must help. The shapeshifters have a human kinfolk community on some of the more remote islands of Vanuatu that is in danger. Strange squid parasites are found hiding on the back of some kinfolk. When pulled off, the person dies. The parasite victims swim out at night to enter a worm-tainted cave the Rokea can't enter. The Rokea offer coral bracelets to the players that let them breathe water and be ignored by the Rokea when the Rokea frenzy. Each bracelet has a very particular fish spirit that turns off the benefits if it isn't pleased. The Rokea will accompany the players and defend them from physical threats. The only problem is when the Rokea frenzy, the players are invisible to them and thus on their own. The cave has potent wards on it. Will the players be able to adjust to working underwater fast enough to deal with the threat? Can they learn to cooperate with the strange and feral Rokea? Oh, number three, a construct of the technocracy on the seafloor is behaving strangely. Regular reports are submitted, but leadership is concerned. Technocrat players are sent to investigate. At first, everything seems fine, but the players notice everyone is surprisingly even-tempered and regular in their habits. A few are developing a greenish tint to their skin, but that is the only effect of the medicine being tested by the progenitors. By degrees, the players notice a subtle mind effect on the construct that prevented them from noticing periodic trips by some technocrats to the island of Nihau in northern Hawaii. There, the agents are meeting with the staff of a hospital. Kopaloe mages are watching that hospital, but the players have strict instructions to avoid contacting them. The Kularvaya have infected the construct and are using technocrats to transport organic specimens to the island hospital. The Kopaloe know part of what's going on, but will resist cooperating with the players. Can the players win the trust of the Kopaloe in time? Can they keep it all a secret from their supervisor? What are the Kularvaya and how did they bend talented technocrats to their will? This mystery will require diplomatic as well as scientific skill. Well, those are a few ideas I just wanted to throw out there. Uh, Terry, I want to hear what, quote, stood out to you from this book. Hands down, and as proof that I actually read the merfolk section, we have the quote, a mermaid is often a seductive mix of her two natures. Her upper body is warm and inviting, and her lower body tapers into a sultry, muscular tail. I was wondering what I thought my spouse was lacking, and in reading the section, I realize it is a sultry, muscular tail. So, <laughs> can't, can't have it all. But otherwise, the writing in this book was pretty good. I included a few other quotes, but I thought that one was a particular reminder of what 1999 White Wolf could be at times. You want to take us out, <laughs> Adam? 
<laughs> yeah, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. And we would certainly appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. We have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also search for Mage the Podcast, all lowercase. You're going to find us. Uh, we're also on Mastodon, and that link is hard to memorize, so that's in the show notes for you. This episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers, and we definitely want to thank them. Terry, can you share the names? I will attempt to in one go. Oracle Sean Gallagher, Oracle Ben Bendelow, Oracle Buck Gregory, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Guy Stewart, Oracle Joshua Hillerup, Oracle Pukaji, Oracle Jade Widener, Oracle Mikhail, Oracle the Prairie Erebus, Archmaster Andrew Adelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Bubba the Pale One, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aran, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, and Archmaster Patrick Mactamara, as well as Alex, Alexia, Anders S, Anon, Baderfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris Blake, Sin Chattis, Daniel Cuppen. Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fragerock, George Laura, Henry Kraft, Eobold, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Lulz and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leroy Bryce, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Poyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Schnabelta Krieger, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Hunley, William Martin, Zach Rules, and Vincent Hamilton. Thank you for your support. If you would like to become an executive producer for Made the Podcast, it would help us to keep bringing you episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. And if you ever need to hide important inner character development or detail or just pad out at a section, remember, in character fiction all the way. Bye.